0: Welcome to Access Utah, I'm Tom Williams. Frank Sinatra's 100th birthday is December 12th. Today on the program, we're going to spend the hour with Sinatra's biographer, James Kaplan, whose bestseller, Frank, The Voice, from 2010, and a new book, Sinatra, The Chairman. Take us behind the legend to give us the man in full, peerless singer, sometimes powerful actor, business mogul, tireless lover, and associate of the powerful and infamous. We're going to be hearing some music as well. And we welcome in uh, James Kaplan. Thanks for joining us.
1: I'm delighted to be here, Tom. Thank you so much.
0: What uh, drew you to Sinatra's subject of biography? This, after all, anyone you choose, you're going to spend quite a bit of time with him or her.
1: Yes, uh, and this uh, this marks my 10th year with Frank Sinatra. I have a circumstantial answer to that, and then there's a deeper answer, I guess. But the circumstantial answer is, in 2000, I profiled Jerry Lewis for The New Yorker. And we became, Jerry and I became uh, close over the next few years. He talked about Sinatra a lot, always as Frank, Frank this, Frank that. Uh, He was an important figure in Jerry Lewis's life, and I began to think of Sinatra as Frank, uh, almost as though I had known him, too. Uh, after a little while, Jerry Lewis asked me to help him write his memoir, which I gladly agreed to do. We wrote a book uh, together called Dean and Me, A Love Story, which came out in 2005. And as we were finishing uh, that book, uh, Jerry invited me to the 2004 Muscular Dystrophy Telethon, which he was still running at that point, in Los Angeles. I went out, uh, I went out to the telethon, and one night I went out to dinner with a bunch of musicians who were working on the show, and uh, about seven guys, uh, men of a certain age, we all went out to a, a Italian restaurant in Santa Monica, and, and we drank a lot. <laughs> uh, we enjoyed ourselves. It was a very pleasant and boozy dinner, and everybody was in very good spirits. And after we had been sitting there for a couple of hours, it it, it came out that every one of these guys had at one time or another worked with Frank Sinatra. And uh, since we were all in a very good mood, uh, I kind of rubbed my hands, uh, expecting to hear the dirt about the women and the mob and the fistfights, and uh, but instead, uh, their voices sort of got lower, and each of them, each of them spoke with awe about what an absolute musical genius Sinatra had been. And I was very struck by that and very moved by that, very touched by these guys who were, they didn't, uh, they had no idea they were sitting with a journalist or a biographer. I was just a a guy who would help Jerry in their eyes. Uh, They didn't care. They could have said anything. This was the first thing they thought of. And right around that time, a new biography of Sinatra came out. uh, retailing yet again, the women and the mob and the fistfights in this new book—you wouldn't have, uh, you would never have known that Sinatra sang a note. Uh, and I, I was looking for a next book to do after Jerry Lewis. I was looking for, uh, I was thinking of doing a biography, and I, uh, I had never written one before. I had written books with other people, uh, their sort of assisted mem- memoirs—one with, with, with John McEnroe and then with Jerry Lewis—and I thought, okay, well, I'll. I'll take this on. Uh, little did I know that 10 years would pass. That that uh, Believe it or not, that was the short answer. The, but the deeper answer, <laughs> and I'll try to be brief about it, is that I grew up in the 1950s. Sinatra was very much, he was in the air when I was growing up. He was part of the fiber of my uh, my growing up, and uh, even though I was a child of rock and roll, I was 12 when the Beatles appeared on the Ed Sullivan Show, on February 9, 1964, and that changed my life. Coming so shortly after the terrible uh, moment of the Kennedy assassination and those dark days that followed it, the Beatles were a blast of light and fresh air, and rock and roll was thrilling, and I loved it then. I love it now, but in, in, in 1981, uh, I went to a uh, Frank Sinatra concert at Carnegie Hall and I was uh, absurdly lucky got to sit in the front row I sort of went a little bit tongue in cheek uh being a ro- uh, rock and roll kid uh at that point I was 30 and uh by the end of the evening I was a convert he was staggeringly great staggeringly charismatic his musicianship was uh was absolutely amazing I had never seen a performance like that, and uh, as as I uh, as I began to write this book, I realized that I was dealing with uh, not just a complex man, complicated man, but really a musician of uh, Mozartian capability. Somebody who comes a kind of person who comes along maybe every couple of hundred years, uh, and thrown in with all of that tom is the fact that this guy was born in 1915 in Hoboken, New Jersey when there were cobblestones on the streets and horses uh, drawing coal wagons and ice wagons through the streets and uh, uh and he died on May 14th, 1998 the night of the Seinfeld finale. He he his life was the American century. He coincided with so much of uh, the American century, so many events, so many personalities, and on top of that, the guy is an absolute genius. You couldn't have a bigger canvas to paint on. And I wanted to do a big book, and I got two.
0: Yeah, two big books. That's right. Yeah, A very complex man. I uh, learned quite a bit uh, from uh, you know from this biography. Uh, I want to start with the the genius, the the, the musical prodigy aspect of the man. Let's hear. Um, Let's hear just a bit of um, I've Got You Under My Skin. You, you could pick, you know, just whatever. This is, this is one that I, I think really, really swings, really, really gets going. And then I want to talk a bit about the, the voice and the musicianship.
2: I've got you under my skin. I've got you deep in the heart of me. So deep in my heart That you're really a part of me I've got you Under my skin I tried so Not to give in I said to myself This affair never will go so well but why should I try to resist when, baby, I know so well I've got you
0: under my skin. And, uh, you know, I kind of want to hear the, the whole rest of it. He gets really swinging at the end there. But you can hear uh, it's, it's, you know, a lot of the Sinatra qualities. that we just Maybe start with the voice itself.
1: It's an incredible voice, and it's easy to think that he, uh, that Sinatra, throughout his singing career, kind of fell out of bed and sang that way. And the opposite is true. Uh, people, uh, Tom, often ask me what the biggest surprise was, uh, writing about Sinatra, and uh, I always say the biggest surprise was not some deep and secret piece of gossip, but the, but uh, the deep and secret fact that Sinatra worked incredibly hard on his singing, that he was. Uh, uh, that he was, in the end, a great musician who had huge respect for musicians and musician, musicianship and his own art. And from the beginning, uh, worked so hard on refining that voice, on doing everything he could to, uh, to study breath control, to study phrasing. He studied the lyrics, of a song so deeply he read them like a poem before he ever sang a note of a song he was going to do he studied breath control at the back of the great band leader tommy dorsey in whose uh, orchestra uh, sinatra sang for three years from 1939 to 1942 he learned a great deal about phrasing from Billie Holiday, who was the same age as Sinatra, but who burst into fame much sooner and who, as a young unknown, uh, Sinatra used to uh, watch uh, raptly and listen to raptly on 52nd Street in New York. Uh, and he took, uh, he took voice lessons from a former Metropolitan Opera singer uh, to learn how to, uh, to learn how to refine that voice. Having said all that, uh, there is I think there 's a certain spooky almost x factor to Sinatra 's singing that it 's something we can 't quite explain it 's a thing that that even after ten years of working on Sinatra still gives me goosebumps when I hear him sing. Uh, it is the thing it, it he is able, unlike any other singer I can think of, to make you feel that he is feeling those feelings and thinking these thoughts in the moment he is singing them. Uh, And it gives such an immediacy, such a freshness to his singing that I really think that that is a voice that will endure over the centuries.
0: Mm. You've talked about, um, in fact, quoting you, uh, his astonishingly intimate singing. And you wanted to say the credit in the one place where Frank Sinatra was capable of creating intimacy.
1: He, as his daughter Tina wrote in a, her very good memoir, My Father's Daughter, my father was a, a deeply, deeply feeling man who was unable to attain a lasting, intimate uh, relationship with another human being. Uh, and this was unfortunately true of Sinatra throughout his whole life. He yearned for intimacy. He, he strove for it uh, on some level. But his music always came first. He knew from the beginning, from the time he was a little kid walking around Hoboken, New Jersey, and as he later said, hearing the music of the spheres, that he was cut out for a special destiny. And that special destiny did not include uh, having uh, deep and lasting relationships that would require uh, that he subordinate his his music and his career to uh, to any relationship,
0: and uh, you know you can trace a lot of an individual back to back to their roots. Uh, he had a pretty conflicted relationship with his mother, I believe.
1: He did. Uh, his mother, Dolly Sinatra, was a volcanic human being, and in many ways, Sinatra's uh, mirror. They were very, very similar. She was. She had a fiery temper. She was. Uh, she was pathologically impatient. Both characteristics uh, Frank shared. Uh, she was brilliant. She was a brilliant woman. She uh, she was a democratic uh, organizer in Hoboken, New Jersey. Uh, she she spoke every dialect of Italian. So she could go around the various Italian-American neighborhoods in Hoboken and get out the vote. She was also a midwife. She was also uh, an abortionist and was arrested a couple of times for that. She... she was unpredictable. And Sinatra later said he never knew whether she was going to hug him or hit him. In fact, she did hit him on numerous occasions. Uh, She, Dolly, Sinatra, and Frank's father, Marty, ran a bar. They kept a billy club behind the bar in case there was trouble. And whenever Frank caused trouble, Dolly would give him a whack with the billy club. Uh, She once pushed him down a flight of stairs. She once pushed him, when they were at at the seashore, she once pushed him under the water in the surf. Uh, this is a woman who, uh, who conditioned in, who stamped on Frank Sinatra's soul, I think, uh, a, a certain suspicion about human relations and especially a certain wariness about his relationships uh, with women that would stay with him for his whole life.
0: Let's take a break when we come back uh, more with James Kaplan. Uh, He's completed now his uh, two-volume biography of uh, Frank Sinatra. First was called uh, Frank, the Voice. Second called Sinatra, the Chairman. And uh, this uh, second volume is out in time for the Sinatra Centennial. His 100th birthday is December 12th. If you'd like to join the conversation with your question or comment, you can join us several ways. The first is toll-free phone number 1-800-826-1495. And you can join us by email to upraccess@gmail.com. at gmail.com. we on Twitter as well, at Utah Public Radio. Let's go out with some uh, Sinatra, and uh, we'll take a break. These little town blues are
2: melting away. Start of it in old New York. If I can. Never been a lady to begin with. Luck be a lady
0: tonight. That is a bit of from uh, Luck Be a Lady. Um, Frank Sinatra is our subject uh, for the hour today. We're talking with his biographer, James Kaplan. Uh, he's out with uh, the second in his uh, two-volume uh, uh, biography. second is called Sinatra, the chairman of uh, and as you, you made reference to James Kaplan earlier, uh, he's he was born early in the 20th century, died in uh, 1998, and in many ways epitomizes the, the century. Um, I wonder that there's a phrase, there's a title that we give him, Entertainer of the Century, justified, do you think?
1: Totally justified. There was no other entertainer, no other d- entertainer whose life intersected with So many personalities, uh, so many of the important personalities of the 20th century with so much of the history of the 20th century and no other entertainer who had as much power as Sinatra did uh, from uh, first during World War II and then after a a severe career downturn, uh, staged the most amazing comeback in show business history to gain greater power uh, from the mid 1950s until the end of his life, than uh, than any other, I think any other show business figure has has really ever had. You can bring up, you can bring up Taylor Swift. You can bring up Michael Jackson. You can bring up, uh, you can bring up the Beatles. But when you when you say everything about Frank Sinatra, about all the people he knew, about the politicians he knew, about the the paths he walked and the, and, and the wake he left behind him uh, about the records he made, the movies he made, uh, the money he made, uh, the impact he made. Uh, Entertainer of the Century, I think, is completely justified.
0: I want to uh, play the acceptance speech uh, 1954. Um, this is after a rapid rise and then a fall. And this, is, this completes his comeback, and this is where you begin, uh, Sinatra the Chairman. Um, so let's 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 hear this. Um,
2: that's a clever opening. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, I'm I'm deeply thrilled and, and very moved. And I really, really don't know what to say because this is a whole new kind of thing, you know. I, song and dance man type stuff. And uh, I'm, I'm terribly pleased. And if I start thanking everybody, I'll do a one-reeler up here, so I'd better not. And uh, I'd just like to say, however, that, that uh, they're doing a lot of songs here tonight, but somebody asked me. <laughs> <laughs> I
0: love you though. Thank you very much. I'm absolutely thrilled. Thank you. So, this is for um, uh, his performance in From Here to Eternity. I'll tell you what surprised me about that. I went back and and watched that. Uh, There's a vulnerability there. Um, You know, you'd you'd have some steel there. You can see some of the tough qualities. But I guess I had in my mind the the Sinatra of later years that I was familiar with, uh, the steely blue eyes, um, you know, a, a tough image, you know, don't mess with him, uh, kind of a thing, a, a bit closed off. And I and, and watching that, I, I saw much more vulnerability than I expected.
1: He was vulnerable. That vulnerability you saw was absolutely real. It's a very moving little, a very moving little speech he gave there, and he, I think, meant every word. He had been so far down that he thought he was never going to come back. In, in fact, four months before he gave that acceptance speech at the Oscars in March of 1954, he had made a serious suicide attempt. Deeply slit his left wrist uh, after having lost his wife, Ava Gardner. He thought uh, for good, and it really did turn out to be for good. At that point, she she had gone on run away with a Mexican excuse me with a Spanish bullfighter. Uh, uh, he thought he would never get her back. He wasn't at all sure that his career would come back, even though he had he had made From Here to Eternity and gotten wonderful reviews. He didn't know he was going to win that Oscar, and he didn't know that he was going to begin recording that incomparable uh, series of great Capitol albums with, with Nelson Riddle Uh he didn't know any of that was lay in his future, and so at that moment on that March night of 1954, he was genuinely humbled, genuinely grateful, and genuinely vulnerable. And yes, the toughness and the steel was actually always there. Of course, it set in more deeply when he acquired more power and and uh, uh, and, and and money. Uh, but there, the toughness, the steel, uh, the swagger, the bravado, always enclosed a, a sort of molten core of hypersensitivity, vulnerability, and insecurity. I'm not asking anybody to excuse Sinatra's bad behavior because there was a lot of it, uh, but this was, this was an extraordinarily insecure man, and you, you see him in that speech at a moment when his, insecurity, uh, his, his insecurities were really uh, at their peak.
0: Um, I want to quote a couple of uh, passages from the book. Have you to have you talk about this? So this gets to Sinatra the man. You say Sinatra had always been. I love this phrase, like your phrase, like a whole body case of restless leg syndrome. And you say elsewhere, Frank's entire life seemed to be based on the building and release of tension. When the release came in the form of singing, it was gorgeous. When it took the form of fury, it was terrible.
1: Yes, yes, he was. Uh, pathologically impatient man. Again, he inherited this from his mother. Uh, It stayed with him his his entire life. It unfortunately stained his movie career, uh, where he, uh, in Hollywood, got a reputation as one-take Charlie. Uh, He felt always that his his best take was his first take in the movies, but that also uh, was trying to cover up the fact that he found movie-making deeply boring, and it uh, it exacerbated his impatience to the utmost. He felt no such impatience in the recording studio, where if it took five takes, ten takes, twenty takes, in the case of I've Got You Under My Skin, that, that magnificent recording, twenty-two takes to get the final take, he would stay for as long as it took, because he knew that this was ultimately going to be his legacy. His His recordings were his legacy. So, yes, uh, extraordinarily impatient man, and, uh, and yes, uh, a man who, who lived tension. He lived tension, and he caused tension in others around him. And when it was released in the singing, it was gorgeous to behold. And very often when it was released in fury, it was terrible to behold, and many beheld it.
0: I want to play a scene from, uh, from the movie Return to Me. And this, uh, this gets us into several different things. W- one thing is it gets us into sort of the popular conception, the, you know, the, the, the icon. Um, this is a scene uh, with some old men uh, sitting around and uh, shooting the breeze and talking about favorite singers and uh, the, these characters played by Carol O'Connor and Robert Loggia and some other great uh, character actors. Mm. Let's, uh, let's uh, hear this.
1: This guy you're
2: talking about, he can't sing at all. Can't sing. How come he's got such a big fan? <laughs> <laughs> to drown him out. Ah, yeah. hey, well, well,
0: stay out of this. How many famous Polish singers are there? <laughs> <laughs> I got two words for you, Bobby Vent. Bobby oh,
2: oh, Bobby Vent. Oh, oh. Bobby Benton. Bobby Benton. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but what do you got?
0: The Irish Rovers? Well, well, well. <laughs> I got three words for you, Mr. Bing Crosby.
2: Hey, oh, he oh. made a lovely priest. Yeah, he made a beautiful priest, but he beat the hell out of his kids. Doesn't oh. <laughs> mean he couldn't sing. <laughs> <laughs> and beat up everybody. Frank did not. His people did. He did not. He did not?
0: So that's, you know, an appreciation they're, they're going to their ethnicity for the great singers. And, of course, the yeah. the Italians have, you know, a, a bunch of people. Uh, so this idea that, you know, um, we have this sort of the stereotype of uh, Frank's people beating up people. Robert Loggia there was careful to say Frank never did, but his people did. Uh, I want to use that as a segue to get into the man behind the legend. And, and there is, there are some tough things to, to deal with, which you deal, deal with sure. and— In the book, I want you to talk a bit about Frank Sinatra's bad behavior.
1: There was a lot of bad behavior. There was a lot of bad behavior, uh, and there were a lot of reasons for that bad behavior. But one thing I want to talk about, and again, I am nowhere excusing Frank Sinatra's bad behavior. I want to say, uh, take a step back, Tom, and just say that over the 10 years I worked on these two books, uh, I, uh, I never got bored with Sinatra. He was a genius, and among the various types of genius he possessed, unfortunately he had a genius, too, for making himself dislikable. He, uh, as Pete Hamill, uh, who wrote a marvelous short book about Sinatra called Why Sinatra Matters, uh, said, his shortcomings were regrettable. This was true. He had a genius for making himself dislikable, and so I frequently disliked him as I was writing about him. But I was never bored with him, and I never... Uh, that, that thing that happens to some biographers uh, never happened to me. I never felt contempt for him. And what I want to say about the bad behavior uh, is a couple of things. I want to uh, address the fact that this was a guy who grew up as an Italian-American uh, in Hoboken, New Jersey at a time when Italian-Americans were just a half-step up the social scale from African-Americans, when Italian-Americans much like African-Americans, were regarded in uh, America at large as happy, singing, dancing people. And uh, unlike African-Americans, happy, singing, dancing people who like to eat spaghetti and now and then uh, uh, shoot people. That was the uh, the cliché. That was the image of Italian-Americans. I think, by the way, that some of that... Image lingers to this day. Unfortunately, Sinatra had to deal with that. I, I think it made him feel early on a sort of uh, attraction to uh, to the mafia guys he met. Uh, he met in his uh, life and his career. He saw them as Italian Americans who had power, and uh, and he saw them. This was incorrect, but he saw them as men of power and, and, and men of honor and, uh, and, and respect, and he idolized them, and he idolized them his whole life. Got him into a lot of bad situations and, uh, and stained him, really. Uh, stained his, uh, unfortunately, stained the genius with uh, the association to these guys. The bad behavior, much of it came from alcohol. He was, uh, Sinatra began drinking heavily during the Ava years as Ava was, uh, was beginning to boor- get bored with him and beginning to leave him and then finally left. He drank more and more heavily, and he was an angry drunk. Alcohol did not do good things to him. And so much of his terrible behavior was stoked by uh, overindulgence in alcohol.
0: And of course, Sinatra's not the only genius to have, uh, you know, Problems, skeletons in the closet, if you if you will. I wonder, you, diving into Sinatra, the you know all facets. There, there could be a danger that 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 colors your appreciation for for the music. I wonder how you separate that that out.
1: I just uh, i i i listen to the songs. There is uh, there is definitely a split that one has to make. Uh, and this is, uh, I, I, I'm not preaching to anybody else. If your dislike of uh, Sinatra's uh, bad behavior, his mob associations, uh, his, uh, his image uh, so colors uh, your feelings about his music that you can't bear to listen to it, I am not gonna, I'm not going to tell you that you're a bad person for feeling that way. However, I, I make the separation. When I hear... That glorious uh, album that Frank made in early 1967 with the, uh, with the similarly brilliant uh, Antonio Carlos Jobim, the great Brazilian singer-songwriter. Uh, the album um, Francis Albert Sinatra and Antonio Carlos Jobim, a great and extraordinarily gentle album. When I listen to that album and listen to the gorgeous songs on that album and realize. He was making this album in the midst of furies in his life. Rock and roll was destroying popular music as he had known it. His marriage to Mia Farrow was unraveling already. Las Vegas was, uh, was as Howard Hughes uh, bought the casinos of Las Vegas and took over from the mob. Las Vegas was changing permanently and Sinatra uh, Sinatra was furious at all these things. Sure and so when you look at that look at that contrast and hear that glorious and very uh serene sublime music you just have to be able uh as as Scott Fitzgerald said uh, great mind's are capable of entertaining uh, two opposite ideas at uh, simultaneously you have to try, to try and strive mm-hmm. to be a great mind
0: mm-hmm. and uh, i don't want to dwell you know completely on the on the <laughs> the bad boy uh, just um just to say this, it, it's you know some of these things that he did, or at least that he, that he was tangentially involved with, would without his power and wealth might have landed him in jail. Absolutely. Yeah, which we you know again describes, unfortunately, um, it's a running theme with some of our entertainers. Um, yep. I want to uh, I want to read this passage. This is comparing Ava Gardner to uh, to Sinatra. Like Frank, she was infinitely restless and easily bored. Um, in both, this tendency could lead to casual cruelty to others, sometimes to each other. Both had titanic appetites for food, drink, cigarettes, diversion, companionship, and sex. Both distrusted sleep. Both hated being alone.
1: So true of both of them. And ultimately, uh, this was like the it's like some uh, subatomic uh, collision of two like forces. They could not. They were they were an unstable compound. <laughs> Frank and Ava. They could never truly bond. They were never, uh, despite their enormous passion for each other, uh, they were never going to be the couple who settled down and raised children. She didn't want children, uh, and and he didn't want a wife who worked. Uh, and uh, they they were just too alike uh, to stay together. He could never conquer her. Uh, she was not a conquest. Ever, uh, even remotely, and so many of the women uh, he was involved with were, uh, were conquests, and that's really what kept him interested, and and also what kept them apart. But it kept him fascinated with her until the end of uh, end of her days and the end of his days. I think.
0: Let's take another break. When we come back, more with James Kaplan. He has completed his two-volume biography, uh, Frank Sinatra. The, uh, the the new volume is called Sinatra: The Chairman. And uh, we'll talk more about Frank Sinatra. We'll be hearing some music as well. Let's go out with with the girl from Ipanema, uh, since you mentioned the collaboration with with Joe Beam. Uh, More following the break. (laughs) ¶¶
2: From Ipanema goes walking And when she passes, each one she passes goes When she walks, she's like a samba That swings so cool and sways so gentle That... And every highway and more, much more than this. I did it my way.
0: So that is Frank Sinatra with uh, My Way. And that's, I wanted to begin this, uh, this last segment with James Kaplan with, uh, with My Way. Uh, it's it's iconic of course it it's very much associated with the man and uh and it epitomizes him in a, in a lot of ways i think james kaplan
1: uh, we his audience uh like to think that it epitomizes him uh, uh, and what I was saying was that uh, that's Frank Sinatra actually did not like my way. Really? He would, he, yes, he did not like the song. He would often announce it in concert, "I hate this song. I don't want to sing it." But his audiences demanded it, and why is that? Because, because audiences have—we all have our fantasies about uh, about our idols, and the fantasy that Frank Sinatra's gigantic audience always had about him was that he lived his life as he pleased. Well, that was true of much of his life, but of course, with all of our lives, there are forces beyond our control, and that was true of Sinatra too. With all his money, with all his power, uh, a lot of it was like Midas, uh, where uh, everything turned to gold, but uh, there was uh, little that he could uh, feel or touch or, or or eat or grasp onto there was a certain paradox in all that power that he gained and uh we like to think that Sinatra had his had had things his way but Sinatra felt that that lyric by Paul Anka uh, was ultimately uh, too too four square too on the money. He was a, uh, Sinatra was a great admirer, a huge admirer of the great lyrics of the likes of Cole Porter, of Lorenz Hart, of uh, of uh, of Hammerstein, and of uh, of of Irving Berlin, and he felt that the lyric of My Way was too obvious, and in the end, that it was boastful. And for all of Sinatra's swagger and, uh, at times, uh, brutishness, uh, he was not a boastful man. He felt that My Way uh, bragged, and he, he didn't want to be bragging but he would go to every concert and the people demanded to hear my way they wanted to hear it they wanted to think that that was the sinatra that they uh, they knew and loved in the end the real sinatra was more complicated than that
0: mm-hmm. what uh, did he have a favorite song uh
1: he uh, he had dozens of them tom mm-hmm. he loved all those all those songwriters that i mentioned he, he revered them he revered his his in-house songwriters sammy Kahn and jimmy van eusen uh... he whenever uh, there was a great lyric whenever there was a great song uh, he knew it he had uh, this was the man by the way who uh, we don't give him enough credit for this but really created uh, who landed the idea of the standard of the uh, the great american song in American culture. He came along at a time in the late 1940s when all of America was listening to the Hit Parade, and Sinatra performed on the Hit Parade. And a lot of that music was junk. Uh, Sinatra really, uh, really loved Rodgers and Hammerstein, Rodgers and Hart, uh, Cole Porter, Irving Berlin, and and he uh and he he felt that these songs ought to be uh, promoted and played, and he and he did it, he sang them, he sang them in concert, he sang them on his albums, and he made those songs important, and they really became those songs, I think, the backbone of of his career and the backbone of his concert career after he came back from his brief retirement in nineteen seventy one Of course, he sang a lot of other things. he sang "My Way," and he sang "Strangers in the night," and uh, he tried to sing. He tried to sing new material, but the, the spine of his career, the center of his career, the core, the great core of his career was those great American standards.
0: I want to talk a bit about uh, the years after that, uh, that farewell concert, 1971. Then he had a comeback album, I believe, in 73, and, and you know, he went on. But, but in some respects, certainly popular culture was passing him by. Um, and he tried to keep up a little bit. He'd he'd wear a Nehru jacket, right, and a few things. Uh, what, what were his feelings about that, about being a he bit out getting of the spotlight? Old. He yeah. hated
1: getting old. Which among us does not hate? Who among us does not hate getting old? Frank Sinatra hated it more than anyone because he was his entire career, his entire life, he was always the hippest guy in the room, and he was... Uh, he was the most, uh, the vigorous, uh, most vigorous guy in the room. The guy with the most money, the most fame, the guy who could attract the most women. Uh, suddenly, here he was. He was married. He was no longer the Lothario he had been. He was on his fourth marriage, and and he didn't get around the way he used to. Uh, he he. He came into middle age and then late middle age, and then uh, his elder years. He didn't like getting old. He hated losing his uh, hated losing his faculties. He hated rock and roll. He hated what was uh, what the music business was becoming. At the same time, and he and he tried to accommodate. He tried to, uh, I won't say accommodate, that's the wrong word. He was not an accommodating character. He tried to adapt. Yes, he wore the Nehru jacket. He sang George Harrison something. He sang other other new songs. He sang Joni Mitchell. It never quite worked for him. Uh, what worked for him was being himself. And when he came back after the retirement and got into a tuxedo and became more or less strictly a concert artist he pretty much stopped making albums he made a few here and there he pretty much stopped making movies he became a concert artist went out on the road took his great repertoire with him mixing it up here and and there changing it up but uh he he very wisely saw what his essence was and who his audience was and his audience in the end, was gigantic. Uh, you could call him a niche performer in, uh, or a niche performer in his in his later years. I would argue that if you're going to call it a niche, it was a very, very large niche. Uh, it's a huge audience he had and continues to have. And I think that uh, once he got over the idea of trying to uh, trying to change and act modern and act young and and. Uh, and do and do a lot of new material. Once he once he settled down and uh, and just became more at ease with being the Frank Sinatra that he wanted to be and his audiences wanted him to be. Uh, he 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 held on to the huge influence he had had throughout his career.
0: I want to take you back to the the, the beginnings of his, his career when he really first hit it big. I think we forget that Frank Sinatra. Uh, there's some great music there as well. Um, he's singing a bit higher, um, and he's a he's a cultural icon. He's uh, young women are screaming. I don't know if this is a new phenomenon, but it's fairly new, I think. He was he was the Justin Bieber you know before, well before Justin Bieber.
1: No, the the young ladies never screamed for anybody the way they they scream for Frank Sinatra in the 1940s. He had uh, he was a band singer. With two band leaders, Harry James and then Tommy Dorsey. And what Tommy Dorsey, who was a great star in his own right, quickly began to see when Sinatra was singing for him was that whenever Sinatra sang on the uh, on the bandstand, the young women in the audience would all edge toward the bandstand with their eyes wide and their mouths open and they would sigh and sometimes scream and sometimes faint. Dorsey (laughs) hated it. He wanted to be the star, but Sinatra saw it and he quit Dorsey and he was the first singer during the big band era to go out on his own. At first, uh, uh, he thought he wasn't going to make it, but then with that gigantic Paramount concert, uh, Uh, in the beginning of nineteen forty three he made it big time and throughout the years of the war world war two he was really an american superstar Uh, he was singing those beautiful ballads of longing on columbia records he was expressing the feelings that all of america felt of sadness and longing uh, uh, fear about the boys fighting overseas but then when the war ended things changed very rapidly and the first thing to change was American taste and popular music. and unfortunately, Sinatra's records very rapidly stopped selling after World War II and that was just the beginning of his troubles.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, part of the reason for his first fall was there was disapproval that he didn't go fight in World War II, I believe.
1: Well, I wouldn't call I, I would call that more the seed of uh, the problems that followed that. There was a great amount of controversy about Sinatra during World War II. Uh, he was uh, widely reputed to be a draft dodger. He got two deferments. First, for having a uh, being a father, uh, that was uh, that was a valid deferment for a couple of years during the war. But then that was revoked uh, as more men were needed. He was reexamined again and found to be uh, found not only to be psychologically unfit and that's a big subject, <laughs> but uh, but also to have a punctured eardrum. And I, I do think he legitimately had a punctured eardrum. It didn't matter, though, because as the uh, as the historian of World War II and himself a Marine in the South Pacific in World War II, a man named William Manchester wrote, Frank Sinatra was the most hated man in the armed forces uh, during World War II. Uh these guys fighting overseas all felt that Sinatra was a draft dodger who was home uh and making time with all of their women well to a great degree <laughs> they were right about that latter fact he he may not have been a draft dodger but he certainly was making time with a lot of their women and he was he was not uh, he was not fighting but that wasn't his records continued to sell and even the guys overseas as much as they hated him the soldiers and sailors listened to Sinatra uh it was only when popular music changed after the war that his troubles began to happen, and then there were a lot of self-inflicted troubles uh, that quickly followed that that really, that really punctured his career and all but ended it,
0: mm-hmm. uh, including a trip to a, a mafia convention, I believe. Uh, I wonder if you could expand on that. But you you mentioned it. A little earlier in the in the in the show, that's that's one thing. You know, bullet points about Frank Sinatra. He was attracted, I think, to power, political power. I guess you know, mafia be part of that. What where did that attraction to the mafia come from?
1: The attraction to mafia came when he was a young Italian American kid in Hoboken, and uh, Italian Americans were were looked down upon. And as I said before, and he saw these he saw these mafia guys he knew as uh, as Italian Americans. Who had power, and he saw them. Sinatra saw them incorrectly as not only men of power, but uh, men of of honor. Well, that is uh, debatable, to say the least, uh, the latter part. But they did have power, and he, uh, much as small boys idolize uh, uh, cowboys and soldiers and and uh, sports heroes, Frank Sinatra idolized the Mafia and and did for his. Entire life
0: uh, and political power as well. He, he, I think, very much appreciated being able to pal around with uh, JFK.
1: He did, he did, and uh, we have to draw a line there and and separate uh, his attraction to political power from, uh, I think, from his attraction to uh, to criminal power. His Sinatra's political beliefs were deep and passionate from the very beginning. His mother was a passionate admirer of Franklin Delano Roosevelt, and, and Frank Sinatra from his early years uh, agreed with her. And Sinatra stayed uh, a liberal, a, a deeply feeling, a deeply passionate uh, liberal Democrat uh, throughout his uh, Teen years, young adulthood, and uh, and almost and no, actually not almost, but into middle age. It was only in the late sixties that his political beliefs swung uh, sharply to the right. But he was, uh, I, I want to say, of course, yes, he was attracted to political power. Political power was sexy to him, and and it was very especially sexy in the person of John Fitzgerald Kennedy. But that attraction to power was strongly yoked to uh, to idealistic feelings about what America should and 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 could be so there was it wasn't a cold calculation on Sinatra's part it was uh, it, it was very emotional
0: just have a couple of minutes left I'd like to bring this back to to legacy and we you know we talked about the idol to the Bobby, Bobby Soxers and the whole sweep of the career, and he was in the spotlight for so long, and he's he's still there. He's still—the the music will live on, I think, forever. Uh, what, what's the legacy for you?
1: The legacy is the music. Uh, you just said it, Tom. The music will live on. Forever is a long time, but I think it will. Uh, uh, I think Sinatra's voice will endure down through the decades, if not the centuries Unlike other voices, and as I said back at the beginning, there is beyond uh, all the hard work that Sinatra put into his singing. Beyond all the technical factors—the breath control and the phrasing, the uh, superlative phrasing—and the, and the deep feeling for the lyrics, there is this X factor. There is this feeling when he is singing that he is living in the song, that he's feeling the feelings, ha- thinking the thoughts as he is singing the song. That, that it communicates directly kind of with uh, the listener's spinal cord. It, it communicates directly with some uh, deep-down instinctual part of uh, the listener, and, and it's what in me uh, creates the goosebumps, and I think in so many other people too. And, uh, and I really think that that is... Uh, that is what that's his true legacy you you have that you have that great mystique and young people love it and i love it too and the myth of the rat pack and the swinging those swinging years and the tuxedos and the late nights and the drinking and the fun uh, a lot of that is myth but my contention is that if you had the mystique without the voice that would fade over time uh, if if some natives uh, thousands of years from now managed to dig up a, a CD and a CD player and make it work and listen to that voice without knowing anything about the Rat Pack, I think they would get goosebumps. I mm-hmm. think the voice is what is going to make him last.
0: Uh, just thirty seconds left. You now, you've spent ten years with Frank Sinatra. What, have you chosen a new subject?
1: I I have not. Uh, uh, Big Nancy, his first wife, Nancy Sinatra, famously said when asked if she w- why she never remarried after Frank Sinatra, she would give a Mona Lisa smile and shrug and say, after Frank Sinatra. <laughs> so uh, it is, It's. its uh, I'm not going to torment myself with trying to come up with a big uh, biography subject, at least not yet. For the time being, I'm enjoying having written this book and, and talking about it with other people such as yourself. And... Uh, and uh, I'm going to let my career take care of itself, and I'm sure a next subject will come to me. But I don't have it yet. That is the honest truth, Tom.
0: Well, we'll, we'll look for something down the road. In the meantime, we're enjoying the uh, two-volume biography. The latest volume is now out, Sinatra, the Chairman. The author is James Kaplan. Thank you so much.
1: It's great talking with you, Tom. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you. We're going to hear some more Sinatra as we go out. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. It's quarter to three
2: There's no one in the place Except you and me So set up, Joe I got a little story I think you should know We're drinking, my friend to the end of a brief episode make it one for my babe and one more for the road